Thank you for listening to History Voyager, a podcast about history. As always, there are a zillion podcasts. Thank you for listening to mine. I want you to think about the horror movie genre. The last horror movie that I saw that had the feature that I'm about to tell you about was in 1995. When I'm talking to you right now, 1995 was 25 years ago. That's insane to think about. It's absolutely insane for me to sit here and think that 1995 was 25 years ago. But it was. Anyway, in the movie Seven, which was the last movie I've ever seen that had this feature to it, Morgan Freeman had a question, or he wanted to do a little research. And Morgan Freeman was the grizzled cop, and so he had grizzled cop questions. And he, where did he go? He went to a building late at night, and this building was a, a, a loci of civic pride. And there were books and magazines. And it almost felt sacred. And as I recall, the security guard in that building put on some classical music. And the whole thing was dramatic. It was a library. Morgan Freeman went to the library to research a question that he had about a killer that copied the seven deadly sins. Now, Let's leave aside for a second that a whole lot of people today would not really be conversant in the seven deadly sins in the Bible. Let's leave that aside for a minute. Because there's another, I think, very, very interesting development that has happened largely in the last 25 years. Maybe a little bit prior to that, but certainly after that. Okay, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the internet. If you look at movies, and if you look at movies that took place, say, from 95 all the way back, let's go back to, I don't know, as far back as you want, really, especially in the horror genre. Where did the young lady go when the young lady had questions about her house or a friend of hers, or something in the community. She went to the library. And there was always this shot of either you're looking through the microfilm reader, or you're looking over her shoulder at the microfilm reader as the young woman reads about the grisly details that happened in her house. Or think about another plot device, the perusal through the phone book. That's another thing. Does anybody even have phone books anymore? Do they even publish phone books anymore? I, I don't know. Probably. Probably not. I don't know. But why am I talking to you about phone books and internet and trips to the library on a podcast about history and COVID-19? Why am I talking to you about this? Well, the answer is essentially this. What if, in the last 25 years, there was a dramatic change 
to our culture. And for a while, we've been seeing it. For a, for a good while, we've, we've been noticing it here and there. Jobs don't, you can't go in person to apply for a job anymore, hardly. You have to go online, and you're at the mercy of something called the applicant tracking system. Right. What's another thing? Colleges. Colleges have a lot of classes online. All right. What's another thing? Think about this. Think about you can listen to a game. You can listen to a sporting event that happens into a whole other place. And you can do it on your phone. And, you know, and what's even more remarkable than that to me, other than the fact that you can communicate with somebody all, all the way around the world or listen to a sporting event in a whole other place or have conversations with historians and sports announcers from whole other countries all over the world. What's amazing to me about all of this is that it's commonplace. That really nobody notices the, the tools with which we do this. That to even have this podcast, I had to stop and think about what they called the doodad that you put the film in and the light bulb comes up through the film and, and talk and shows you. And I had to stop and remember that it's called a microfish reader. And I'm old enough to have used the microfish reader. I used the microfish reader in college. That's how old I am. Now, of course, you know, the microfish was still there and whatever. But here's where I think this dovetails with COVID-19. I think we're seeing a generational divide play out in real time. That's what I think. I think we're seeing a generational divide play out in real time. And I'm looking not at COVID-19, but at the economy that we're doing, the, the wreckage to the economy that we're creating so that people don't have to die of, a, of you know, an illness that we don't really know a whole lot about. We don't, you know, nobody's grandmother had COVID-19 in 1990. So we don't know how COVID-19 goes. We don't know if COVID-19 is going to come back and, and bite survivors, you know, years later. I say that, but, uh, you know, there's artery damage is happening now and quote-unquote COVID survivors. And we're all, I mean, I'm old enough to remember, ha, 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 when COVID-19 was thought only to be a lung disease. Now it seems that it attacks the central nervous system. But why am I talking about this? Because I think one of the things we're seeing, one of the fascinating things we're seeing is a generational divide because there's a generation out there that's looking at COVID-19 in retail and they're thinking, this disease is going to kill retail. It's going to kill the Main Street. It's going to kill Walmart. And I think there's a generation out there that's very concerned. Because here's something else about the internet. The internet snuck up on people. The internet changed society. As recently as 1996, the year after Seven was released, by the way, only 20% of American households had the internet. And now, virtually every single adult has the internet in their house. According to the Pew Research Center, 
As of 2019, 90% of American households had the Internet. According to the same study, 77% of households had high-speed Internet in, in America in 2018. Now, here's what's interesting about that. In 1996, the Internet was dial-up. You couldn't watch it. You couldn't really listen to it. You just sort of basically had it. And it was like reading. I actually remember this very clearly. One time I had a roommate who was much younger than me who asked me, quite honestly, Ben, what did people do on the Internet? You know, back before people could listen to it. People weren't even streaming video then when he said this. And I really had to think about it. And I really had to think about it a lot. What's interesting to me is how quickly the Internet snuck up on people. And how big of a change the Internet actually turns out it actually was. And when you think about it, we're really recent in the history of the Internet. When you compare it to, say, something like the book. I mean, 25 years after Gutenberg invented movable type, the world really hadn't changed a whole heck of a lot. I mean, you know, you still had a lot of illiterate people 25 years after Gutenberg invented the printing press. But 25 years after America, you know, had the Internet start to proliferate, so 1996, right? When you think about that, it's a much higher rate of, you know, penetration into the culture. But even then, what are we really talking about? Because people can use the Internet to do different things. I can go to my aunt's house in the mountains, and yeah, she has the Internet, but I can't really, you know, I can use it to buy things on Amazon or something, but I can't watch Amazon. I, I can't listen to the radio on the internet. So what are we really talking about? And that's another thing, is that the internet has, much like with COVID-19 in the healthcare system, the internet shows basically major inequality issues. And there's also this real you know, the Internet adds value to a community. I have a friend who's a real estate agent, and he says that, you know, people judge, you know, the value of a house based on how fast the Internet goes, especially now with cord cutting. And during the pandemic, and this is another thing about the Internet, during the pandemic, cord cutting has increased dramatically even in businesses, um, bars and restaurants are even starting to to think twice about cable expenses and things like that. And this, this whole culture of Internet dependence has been, you know, increasing more and more and more. And now with the pandemic, we're starting to see that. And also because a lot of people are having to work from home, 
because either because the boss doesn't want you know COVID-19 to come into their to their uh, workplace or because they have people in their house that are very susceptible to COVID-19 so you know more people are starting to work from home so here again society is looking at this and society is thinking well I don't know you can't you know, I don't have high-speed internet, or I don't have high-speed internet, so therefore, you know, I can't, my kid can't really have school from home, or I have to go in and have my job in public, you know, I can't sit around, or I can't do my job from home, and people are starting to see how, how revolutionary the internet actually ended up being, and that's sort of amazing, that it, was doing this from, say, slightly before 96 to today. And you think about, I mean, I think the Internet really took off when you start to think about the smartphone. Ten years ago, hardly anybody had a smartphone in America. As of 2019, 72% of Americans have some kind of smartphone. What's amazing to me about that is... That's a huge category that basically took off certainly in the last, just since 2005, but even more in the last decade. And it spawned an entire culture. It spawned an entire, almost like people don't judge you by how you dress anymore. They judge you by your phone or what kind of phone you have. And, you know... I hesitate even to call these things phones because they're really just miniature pocket computers. You know, high-end Android smartphones now have, you know, chips that are they put in laptops. And, you know, the A12 chip in, a, in an iPhone is a, the most powerful chip in a computer these days, That in the personal computer, which, you know begs the question, why do they call these things phones? Because you call on them? But now here's the thing that you have to realize, that, you know, all this was new, and this was going, this, I guess you could call it a quiet revolution that was sort of happening under everybody's nose. And it was kind of happening in a way that you could sort of ignore but it also sort of shows me, you know, how change happens, especially technological change. It's not enough to say that the, the computer was invented at this year or whatever. It's not enough to say that 20% of American homes had the Internet in 1996. The real answer is when did the Internet start to proliferate? When did the Internet start to shape the culture in a serious way? When did people say, I need to buy something, and instead of get their car keys, get their phone, or go back to their computer? When did that start happening? Because that's what this disease is showing us. And I also think there's another thing happening here that's happening in real time 
COVID-19 and specifically the way people find out about COVID-19 is showing us that Twitter has become essentially a news source, which is, you know, before the Arab Spring came around, Twitter was essentially basically a, a chat, a, you know, a, a texting or chat app on somebody's phone. And then the Arab Spring came around and showed everybody, oh, that you can disseminate news on this thing. Wow. And so, you know, I use Twitter primarily for the news. Right? So, you think about, and this is also when you can start to see the siloing effect of the news. And you can start to see that you can build yourself these bubbles online. And, you know, we joke about, you know, oh, there's the Bigfoot bubble or the, you know, the UFO bubble. But, you know, you could just as easily have a Democrat bubble or a Republican bubble. You know, and, okay, so, but COVID-19 is showing people it's showing people that there are people in this country that really, really depend on the sort of pre-internet world. And they really can't, either they can't let it go or they don't want to let it go because, you know, in, you know, in doing that, you have, to, you have to become aware of so many other things that perhaps they just don't want to become aware of. Or perhaps they feel like they can't aware, become aware of. Because what I've noticed with a lot of people that aren't technology savvy is they end up giving over control of things. And maybe they don't want to do that. Or they really can't. And also, I really think a lot of this is that over the course of, say, the last 40 years we've really started as a society to really, really question the role of the government in, basically, in society at all. I mean, I've said this before in the podcast, but think about, if you really want to have a narrow view of what the Constitution is, if you really, really, really want to have this super narrow view of what the Constitution is, then the Constitution was basically silent on a whole lot of stuff, including, as it turns out, public welfare. So therefore, these, you know, governors are left to decide, you know, the welfare of their states. And I don't mean, you know, welfare, the government service. I mean, like, the health and welfare of the states that this is something that the Trump administration has basically said. In fact, I think he did. I think he said that the government, the state governments are basically in charge of, you know, the ventilators and the, the different COVID-19 preparations. And this is a serious departure you know, Bill Clinton set up the National PPE Reserve as for the for the country, and here the the, the federal government 
under, of course, the Republicans, have decided that, no, 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 this is a state responsibility, and that, at least in theory, the federal government will step in at the very last resort. But it just strikes me over and over and over again that these protests resolve around shopping. It's as though shopping was this civic society, like a civil society exercise that, you know, it's like I knew it existed before. I knew it was a thing. I knew that lots and lots of people, you know, shopping isn't just shopping. It's, it's also socialization. But the thing that occurred to me was, with all this, is I think for a lot of people, they take more civic pride in shopping than anybody had ever thought. And I also think there's a whole lot of people, it's like, you know, 1918 was 102 years ago, right? And basically we've had, if you count the three, so if you count baby boomers, Generation X, and millennials, and I guess Zoomers, so what is that? That's four. If you count the four generations, we haven't really had this, like World War Two, right? We haven't had this national sort of, we've all got to pull together as a team moment, like they did with World War Two and the Depression and, you know, World War One. Think about that. You've got four generations that don't have any experience or any lived experience at all of pulling together as a team. And this is a moment where our country has to pull together as a team. And instead of pulling together as a team, you know, and I say instead of pulling together as a team, because really I think this is a minority. Really, I honestly think this is a a minority. But there's a, a sizable minority that instead of pulling together as a team doesn't want to do that. What they want to do is, you know, keep doing what what is normal. But, and a friend of mine asked me this tonight. A friend of mine asked me, what do you think about the liberty movement? And here's what I think about it. I think that this disease is new. And I don't think we know how this plays out. And everybody's old enough to remember when we all thought it was a lung disease. And now it's not. Now it attacks the central nervous system and large aortas. And, you know, you can get it from urine. You can get it from smelling feces. And gentlemen, and I'm talking now to the gentlemen, how many gentlemen among the audience here have gone into a men's room and smelled urine? And you think about the, the you know, COVID-19 can travel on that smell. And you think about that. Now, I've thought a lot about that, you know, and but I think there's this moment where we're seeing now that there's an awful lot of people that between the fact that we're, we're being asked to pull together as a team and the fact that unlike, say, in 1918, you know, quite a few of us had a viable choice of being able to, you know, shop online or work online and I think there's a lot of people that realize in doing that for what might be a small minority of people and I say a small minority of people because 
remember that it's between 3 and 6% that can die of the disease, although I think it's wrong to just fo focus on that because the reality is that a whole lot of people can catch the disease and nobody knows what exactly, you know, happens to the people that catch the disease down the road, years and years down the road. Although, again, you know, people are starting to show up with heart attacks and strokes and things like that. Okay, but a lot of people are looking at this and saying that our, our shopping retail is going to die. It's going to go away. And a whole lot of Americans, specifically in my state, work in small industries that employ, I think I heard, less than 60 people. You know, and that whole culture is basically going to disappear and we're, you know, or at least be severely damaged because think about this. Think about what's going to happen to the dining culture. Think about what's going to happen to the music culture, right? And a lot of people don't want that to go away. And this, it's sort of like the, the peasants' revolt, except the peasants in the peasants' revolt weren't actually peasants. They were quite higher, they were quite better off. So that, to me, that, that's an exact parallel. This is kind of like the peasants' revolt, you know, except in America. And do I think it's a lot of people? No, I think an awful lot of people want to stay home. 70%, according to the polls, want to stay home. Now, what's interesting to that is that, you know, there's a huge percent of Republicans, I saw 80% in one poll, that think it's totally safe to go eat out. And it strikes me that really what they're saying is that if we let go of this, that this is a culture that we're letting go of. And of course, you know, they're right that this quiet internet revolution that really didn't really reach a tipping point, I don't think, until the smartphone. Because it was with the smartphone that you got, you finally got, this internet is everywhere and you can do basically a lot of stuff over the internet now that either didn't exist 20 years ago or you couldn't have done 20 years ago and now you can and I think they're seeing that the generation that this is the mark of the generations and that they're being left out and that they're also being asked to do something that a lot of them don't really have any lived experience in doing, and that is to pitch in as a team and essentially pull together. Or maybe, maybe I've got it wrong, and maybe they see pulling together as going shopping. You know, a friend of mine said that the American, um, the American attention span is really, really short, and he thinks people are going to drop their eye on the ball and going to go back to normal. And okay, maybe. Maybe they will. But I really don't, I really think that it's kind of like it won't happen if it happens um, 
if a lot of people start dying of COVID-19, I think people are going to get scared. But I think that what will happen is this dependence on the internet, an increased dependence on the internet. And I really, really think that that's a generational issue. Anyway, thank you for listening to the History Voyager. This has been a, a situation, a, a podcast in the COVID-19 uh, vein of the podcasting. And there's going to be a couple of changes that I'm looking forward to officially unveiling in a couple of days. And I'm, anyway, so I'll be really excited to tell you about those. But hey, thank you guys for listening. And so far, the, the listeners have been big, way bigger than I ever would have thought. Thanks a lot, and I'll talk to you later. Goodbye. See you later.